those things in your life that give you pleasure, you'll come back to. And typically when I'm doing those things, my mind is active and creative. And so I think that's, that's really the key to happiness in the future for everybody is to look to do things and experience things you haven't done. Inspiration, creative people, problem solving, imagination, discovery, thinking outside of the box. Welcome to Inspiris Audio Magazine, a podcast focusing on creativity, inspiration, and imagination. I first met my guest during a grueling 24-hour endurance dirt bike race in southern Washington state in 2018. He is a retired U.S. Army Special Forces soldier who deployed to 17 countries and experienced combat during nearly 24 years of service. During his time in the Army, my guest used creativity to solve problems, and now he's using it to find balance in his life while forging a new business path. I'd like to offer a warning that this episode has mature language and drug references. I'd like to introduce Randy Curley to Inspiris Audio Magazine, and we're going to jump right in. Hello. Hello. Nice How are you? So can you give me a brief snapshot of who Randy Curley is, your elevator autobiography? I would have to say, if I was to say the life of Randy Curley, um, I started off in a small town as a logger kid uh, out on the coast of Washington. And then uh, the collapse of the logging industry in the 70s, we moved inland a bit. I just grew up in a small you know, farming community. The National Guard commercials were really good then. And it always showed people saving people's lives, right? So we were super, we were kind of a super poor family. So, so I saw, I'd see those and I'd be like, man, maybe I should, I should do something like that. It looks like you're giving back to people. Uh, I went to infantry. And then after the, you know, I was in the infantry for four and a half years. And right after the first Gulf War was over, um, I came back and I had decided that Randy didn't like being told what to do in a combat zone when people were shooting at him. <laughs> and, uh, he wanted a little freedom from that. Wanted to make his own decisions when people were shooting at him. So I tried out for special forces, and uh, after that, that was that was it for the next eighteen years. I always wanted to be a medic, but I had no background in medicine and no college. So the first three or four years I was on the team, I cross trained a lot with our medics. I loved it. I loved medicine, and I would always seek to do more with them. But I also was learning a lot about communications, and then because of my position. And the team I was on, I was getting to do mountaineering, which was my passion, personal passion. So I loved medicine. But after two deaths happened in my early career, I switched over to become a medic. Absolutely engulfed myself in medicine, loved it to death. And then I got promoted up again. And after you're an E8, you typically can't stay in the junior enlisted ranks anymore. You have to move up to a leadership position, command position. So I took the best medical job I could find which was the senior medic for, for the battalion. And then eventually I moved to the group and then I retired. I think that's kind of the, the summary of what's come and gone so far. How is serving in the special forces rewarding to you as an individual? It kind of has to go into military history of what got me, why we went through the first Gulf War, right? So when they spun us up and, and put us in the room to give us the brief about deployment, they're like, hey, 48 hours, you're leaving. And you need to tell your spouses that you're not coming back. And we're going someplace. And then I got over there and nobody really had this understanding of what was supposed to happen. We rehearsed things. And when we went over the border, the first time we came into contact with anything, 
<laughs> Literally everything fell apart. We had a 60 millimeter mortar round airburst over the driver's hatch and we were sitting still and the unit just sat there. They didn't maneuver. They didn't. They just called out, hey, we're taking uh, mortars. And it was just like every single thing after that just seemed to have like this delay in action. You knew the right thing to do, but you had to request permission to do it every time. Uh, as soon as I came back to stateside, my daughter was born. And then I came back to the unit. I'm a dad and everybody congratulated me and they're all back now. We're cleaning gear. And I look at my squad leader and I tell him, I want to be a ranger, man. And he's like, yeah, so the rangers don't like E5s coming over that have no ranger experience. <laughs> and he goes, I told you a million times, you need to be special forces. And I said, who the fuck are special forces? <laughs> Literally. I probably said it in those exact words too. And he wasn't being supportive of my concept in my brain to go to a better place, right? To me, he was, he was countering that. And so I was a young E4 promotable and I was mad because I wanted to do something I thought was going to better me and he wouldn't let me do it in my opinion, right? Started acting like a little shithead for a couple of weeks. And he tells me to do something one day and I smart off to him. And he goes, so I just want to let you know, I'm a fucking E6 and you're my team leader. And I could actually give you an article 15 for the words that just came out of your mouth. So here the house is going to go. You have five days to write a paper on the special forces and the history of the special forces. And in five days, if I don't have it in front of me, I'm taking this counseling statement and my recommendation for Article 15 of the first sergeant, and he'll do anything I say. So I go down to the library. I think the actual document, the first one I found, I think it was actually a, a circular, like a historical circular on a unit. And, and I checked it out and I read it. It was probably like 90 pages long. And it told the history of the first special service force from World War II. And I'd never even heard of them, right? Some, some little small town kid that grew up in the woods and then moved out to farmland. I read that and I was like, holy cow. I was like, what oh, got my attention right off the bat was you're reading this. And, and it talks about how they, they went into the, the remote regions of the United States and Canada looking for trappers, hunters, miners, ruffians from small towns in the middle of nowhere, all men. And that's what they wanted. And they didn't want an army unit. They wanted these guys that had hardcore, live-on-their-own skills that could be applied to a military benefit. Man, I love being in the mountains. I'm, I'm a logging kid. Right? Just everything I've, I've done in my whole life, my dad and my mom, from the age of 10 to 14, sent me to survival camp every summer. So every summer, I learned a new survival trick. I, as soon as I read that, I just thought, okay, Dean was right. I need to go try out for these guys. This is cool. So I didn't know Jack and S about special forces at all. Oh, I've done all my homework. I actually found a copy of the application somewhere. I filled the whole thing out. I get this uh, call from the, my company commander, and uh, the first sergeant's in there. My squad leader's in there. And they, they looked at me and they said, so you're going behind our back now trying to get orders? And they were just messing with me. And they were really happy that I had applied. And uh, they were like, no, you, uh, you just got orders for a special force selection, and you're going to go in October, and that gives you five months to prepare. And the commander looked at me, and he goes, so tomorrow, I want a five-month training plan on my desk, and that will be your work schedule for the next five months. And the unit was awesome. I mean, I, I was 
I was one of their good performers, so they gave me a lot of leeway. And I trained for about eight hours a day for five. So I did well, and that's when that E7 pulled me off to the side at the end and said, hey, you know, you get to pick your MOS. Uh, what do you want to be? And I said, I want to be a medic. And he goes, yeah, I was looking at your folder. <laughs> You're, you know, a young guy, and you got no medical history. So we need people like that in special forces. If you fail the medic side, you get, you get needs of the Army. But if you get in something you're good at, like weapons and tactics, and you master that, then move up when you're ready and, and get the second MLS. And I was like, that's a good idea. <laughs> and I was like, yeah. And so I took that advice. And that's kind of how Special Forces started out. Can you tell me of a memorable role model you had during this time frame? It's hard to explain how the role thing works there. But I would have to say it's my first team sergeant. I had a lot of motivation. I had a lot of natural ability and athleticism. So working in special forces worked for me. I could do well there. But what I didn't have was a broader view on the world. I didn't, I didn't know a lot. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. I didn't know that the United States had done things we had done either. So here I've got this first team sergeant. Back in those days, not so much now. I mean, now it's still part of the community, but it is so much more frowned upon now than it was before. Um, you went out and drank a lot. That's how you got to know each other. You worked hard all day on a deployment. You would go out and you'd blow up buildings, shoot guns, drive cars, flip things, repel out of helicopters all in a day. Go back to your place, clean your guns, put them into the arms room, and go have dinner with the team. And while you're having dinner, you talk about the next day's training and drink two, three, ten pitchers of beer. <laughs> you know, and that's just how it was done. So after you were done with the work part of it, you know, you were going to get up at five in the morning and go run five miles. Fuck it, have a few more beers. And so I would sit around and talk and listen to my team sergeant. I learned what it meant right there to be in special forces as an operator because I got to listen to operational story. Those kind of helped me push forward. When I had the first, my first death in Special Forces, a good friend of mine, when he died 50 feet from me, and there was nothing I could do about it. You know, Fred was the guy that got me through that. He really was. I was actually completely messed up. Just my head was done. I was not thinking straight at all. I was drinking like a six-pack plus a night. I started smoking because the guy that died, Jake, he'd started smoking. And I got mad at him for it. So I started smoking. <laughs> it's a really dumb reason, I know. But, you know, you do crazy things when you're mad at people. And they die. I got picked up for sniper school right after that. And Fred was like, good. You need to go to a school because you need to get your head on. But to go to sniper school, you got to take a mental eval. So I go over to the hospital to get my eval. They called Team Sergeant. And they said, you need to keep him away from every gun in the fucking United States Army. He's fucking ready to lose it. <laughs> Something along those lines. Uh, and Fred actually walked over to the hospital, I found out later, and talked to the doc one-on-one. -on -one. Told him about the accident. Told him about everything that was going on and how I needed to be put into a school so I could get my military bearing back. And the doctor listened to him, believed him, and said, all right, we'll send him back. We'll do a reevaluation. And then somehow, miraculously, I had this passing score to go to sniper school. So I went, and it was fantastic, and I came back. My head was on straight again. 
and things were good. So it, you know, he, he helped me through a few tough periods early in special forces. And I greatly appreciate that. And then I had other influences that were role models for me. Definitely. But the reason I still picked Fred out of all of them was in E7, I got promoted on a combat deployment. And I did that for the entire duration of the trip. It happened on the second day we were there. So when I got my NCOIR from that, you know, here it was a C7 filling an E8 job in a combat zone. And he did all the medical shit on top of that. I had a really good NCOIR. Uh, your, your annual rating, right? That's the NCOIR. So my, my rating was really high. And my promotion packet gets sent up to the Department of the Army, Special Forces Branch. And in that process, there's a board of E9s, so sergeant majors. And they basically review every packet. And as long as I think three or more sign the packet, then it's a promotion, right? Turns out Fred was on that board and he's going through his packets. And by dumb luck, I was in his pot. And he opened it up and he'd read everything I'd done since I'd left him. He said he hand carried it to all the sergeant majors that he needed and made sure they signed it in front of them. So that would be promoted. We'll be back with Randy after a brief break. Please consider subscribing to Inspiris Audio Magazine. Not only will you earn my great appreciation, but as a thank you, you'll receive access to content not found in the episodes. You'll also receive advanced notification that a new episode will be released. You can subscribe at Inspiris Audio Magazine's website, inspiris-podcast.com. That's I-N-S-P-I-R-I-S-podcast.com. Welcome back to the show. Would you say that there is any creativity related to your time in the armed forces? If so, can you tell me of a time that required you to find a resourceful solution to a problem? That's special forces in general, resourceful solutions to problems. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's kind of what we, I think that's kind of why all the ADHD guys go to special forces because they're just looking to solve something so they can keep busy. Uh, <laughs> I got to influence a lot when I was in special forces and, and I was very proud of that. And it's hard to leave the military and give that up because you're very proud of helping people and doing stuff for the guys you work with in hopes of maybe saving their lives or making their job easier. So I have to say that the creativity piece that I got to do in the military started out teaching mountaineering. And then once I became a medic, I taught a lot of very basic first aid to a lot of special forces guys. And then I also got to continue teaching the mountaineering. So between the medical and the mountaineering, I was always trying to think and develop new ways to simplify and make things easier for people to understand. And I like to believe <laughs> that I was good at that. I still to this day receive compliments for some of the things that I've taught in the past. And so I, I think I have a way of communicating with people at a level of trying to keep it technical, but also have a little bit of personal interpretation mixed in there, but not overdo that. It's, I don't know. I'm not good with words. I'll put it that way. I'm good at teaching things. I'm not good at sitting describing myself. <laughs> so I apologize if this sign of rambles. I'm not. I don't really think about how to describe the things yeah. that make me creative and colorful. Okay, well, then I'll just go on to the next question. Yeah. We'll just kind of, we'll, we'll attack it from a different angle. Mm -hmm. What does living life to the fullest mean to you, and have you been successful at finding that creative element? Yes, living life to your fullest, and that's, that's kind of where I was kind of, I think, taking that previously, is that I'm not a judgmental person. If you do something to stab me in the back, I'm going to be mad about it for a little bit, and then eventually I'm going to be like, 
know what's going to happen. Is it me staying mad at this jackass going to make me feel any better? No. So why am I thinking bad thoughts about a person? They're just idiots. You know, I, I just try and rise above the whatever the problem is. And so have I been successful in my career? Yeah, I, I think so. I think where I find joy is in every day. I'm always trying to look or do something to better myself or find enjoyment in my life. Uh, I went to med school for a bit. Turns out that was not the career field for me, but I had prepared so many years to go there, I thought it was. And so when I, when I didn't quite complete what I wanted to do, what I thought was my future, that kind of kicked me in the junk for a little bit, and it took a rebound. And that rebound is fantastic. Every once in a while in life, you have those things happen. So you can either let it ruin your life, or you can roll over, learn from it, and and try not to repeat it, if at all possible. I don't hate on anything, but I am definitely, as I get older, becoming more cautious. I'm not as trusting of people now. And in the military, I felt I could I could do that better. So it's not quite the same. In the military, I, I mean, I woke up every day happy. My job was great. I worked with great people. <laughs> Just, everything is good. And that's kind of how I try to live my life. I got my kids, right? Now I'm trying to be a role model for my kids too. I try and live to just the fullest to be happy as much as possible and don't get hung up on the negative. If you're hung up all the time on the negative, then you're just not going to go very far. I'm the kind of person that likes to keep moving. You know, I, don't, I don't like to sit still. I like to be progressing someplace. Yeah, so I, I find I still grow and enjoy life to the fullest. And I don't really, honestly, I can say this. I have no regrets. I've done some stupid shit. But if I hadn't have done the stupid shit, I would have never learned what I learned from that, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. So I don't regret that moment anymore. It was inconvenient at the time. <laughs> <laughs> So how do you overcome distraction when your head is exploding with ideas? I was diagnosed during med school with adult ADHD. I called up my wife and I told her over the phone. You know, she was concerned, but, you know, hung up. And, and she called my brother. And uh, my brother, he and I are really close. We're good, good friends. And uh, we're brothers. She called up my brother. And she goes, hey, I just want to talk to you. And, you know, they, they told Randy today that he was uh, ADHD. My brother just started busting up laughing on the phone. And he was like, what? He had to go to a doctor to find that out? I could have told him that shit when he was eight, you know? <laughs> so, yeah, I like to keep moving. My brain doesn't like to sit still. When I listen to people, and so I'm not a brilliant person by any means, but I'm a pretty smart guy, right? I'm not brilliant, but I'm, I'm, I got my head on my shoulders. And I can do a lot. But I like to listen to Elon Musk talk about some of the things that he thinks about in his long lectures and stuff. Because the guy's brain never stops, literally. And I like to listen to the way he thinks about shit because I'm like, all right, the next time I start thinking about that, maybe I'll go down that path next time, right? Because I'm always thinking about doing something. Does it mean that you, you go down the rabbit hole fairly often? And if so, where does oh, yeah. that take you? My rabbit holes, I love backcountry skiing. I'll sit and plan entire trips sometimes like i want to go to this mountain i'll figure out how long it'll take me to approach it what would be the uh advantageous uh descent on the ski down uh, i'll plan an entire trip out and then i can't find 
or I can't find the time or I can't find the people to do it with me. So it'll just get pushed off to the side. I have tons of projects like that. I constantly, you know, working on trying to make things better for myself so I can do more. But what's funny is sometimes I get so many things on the table, I prevent myself from doing anything. And so sometimes I, now I have to stop and go, yeah, you're just getting crazy again for a bit. So slow down, clean up four of these projects, finish the one, finish the other three, <laughs> you know, and I slow down a little bit. So I had a little bit of a mental breakdown and the VA put me on some medications for a while to try and help, right? And when, when you don't know that your brain works differently for a reason, you know, you don't quite understand necessarily. And, and I think, I think what I was learning to do was deal with the fact that I had some PTSD and it was being suppressed because of the medications they put me on. I was never really able to grasp what my problem was. And then I recognized that one day. I, I literally recognized it because I thought about suck starting a pistol and I was in med school and I was like, I'm coming off the meds. I'm, I'm stopping all this. So I looked up all the medications. I, I figured out my deceleration doses and I came off everything. And uh, the day that I came off everything, I went over to my daughter's house. She's an adult now. And I got a, <laughs> I got a bowl of weed off of her and I smoked that. And I said, wow, yeah, that kind of clarified a whole bunch. <laughs> and uh, yeah, if I start getting spun up about things anymore, it's, it, it slows your head down so you're not thinking like a million miles an hour. And you're able to focus on one, one thing as opposed to five or six things. So I have, a, I have a very close friend, first name Chris, former Special Forces, retired. He had a very, very, very bad experience in life with drugs and alcohol in his family. So he was very sensitive about the whole topic and does not support people doing marijuana, uh, really doesn't like people to abuse alcohol, you know, just likes to be low key. And he says, Hey, let's go ice climb. I was like, dude, right? No. Yeah, let's do it. I haven't been ice climbing in like nine years. So I get all my ice tools out. We get my stuff together and I uh, throw all my stuff in his truck and we're driving to Ori, Colorado. And, uh, we're probably 10 minutes into the drive and I cracked the window and I go, hope you don't mind, but I'm smoking weed. <laughs> And he kind of gave me a little hell for it, right, uh, at first. And I didn't take it personally. I said, listen, I understand your position, and I support you on that. I am not trying to justify it or tell you. Something. But for me, this, this helps me to slow down so I can stay with us for, for everybody else, right? I can keep on the same playing field, and I don't feel out of place. And he was like, okay. So we're driving down the road a little more. I smoke a little more. And he goes, whoa, you're going to smoke more than that? I'm like, yeah. It's chilling. He's like, oh, okay. Drive a little farther. I smoke a little more. And he looks over and he goes, Jesus, man, if I smoked that much, I'd be freaking unconscious. <laughs> I was like, I told you, I don't smoke it for the same reason you do. And then here we are when we go to go ice climbing. You know, I've got three back surgeries, seven knee surgeries. I've had total 15 surgeries in my body. I'm in constant pain. I smoke a little weed and I take off like a bat out of hell. And it's not that I'm not in pain. My whole body just hurts, but I'm not thinking about the pain. And so then I can do the activity. If I'm thinking about the pain, then I can't do the activity. And uh, for me, it's just, it's, it's kind of a clarification. It just clears things up. Does it ironically make you more laser focused? Yes. 
because you're able to concentrate on the the one task the, the one you need task. to do right and people don't quite understand that and they're they're you know it's still a new topic in the world of medicine and there are a lot of people that are supportive of it but there's still a big community of old timers old thought processes but I'll tell you this if I was going to the VA for help they'd have me on six different psych meds that the only thing they ever did for me was make it so that I couldn't actually express dislike to something. And, and that didn't help because it, it was just getting bottled up. I sensed it. I just couldn't express it. I, now I smoke a little bit of weed. And I don't have fits of rage. I don't have problems focusing on my tasks that I'm working on you know, right then to get it done. How do you define creativity? I don't really have a definition for it. I think creativity comes if you just try to naturally use your mind. My wife had a similar question to this, so let's go down that. She, she was reading a story the other night, and she said, I know this is just a novel, but when I read it, I start thinking about this and that and that. And this, I go, right, that's, that's your creative mind kicking in. That's your, that's your, what do we tell kids to, imagination. That's your imagination. That's your creative mind kicking in. And you trying to feel what the writer's expressing. It's, it's, it's an adult imagination. It's making you think that way. That's your imagination now taking it the rest. It's not the book. It's your brain. So I kind of look at just everything like that. Your imagination is what you can think of to do next. It's what's going to be that next thing that's going to make you feel content and happy. Now, sometimes people forget what's right in front of them right? And sometimes you got to be reminded that it's right there in front. You don't have to go anywhere for it. But if, if you're content and happy, I think that creates creativity in itself. So do you think that creativity is merely a means to an end or does it make your life better, fuller? Well, so, so yeah, creativity does make your life better. I think that's part of the problem we have right now, maybe with a lot of our social infrastructure. Because it takes the creativity away from the mind because it provides creativity for the mind. It doesn't require the mind to think outside the box. And I think a lot of people get coddled by that, maybe. I've found creativity in my life in multiple things. So the, I think the first thing when I was a kid was, was probably skiing. And, and then came mountaineering, general mountaineering. And then came the army. And then came special forces. And then back to the mountaineering again. You know, it's like everything's kind of, I don't know, it kind of has a circle and... Those things in your life that give you pleasure, you'll come back to. And typically when I'm doing those things, my mind is active and creative. And so I think that's, that's really the key to happiness in the future for everybody is to look to do things and experience things you haven't done. Or find the things you have done, if you find them enjoyable, work to perfect them. And then when you've perfected them, maybe you'll find something new to start working on. Kind of like a constant progression of yourself, but not necessarily to, to be egotistic, but just to learn and be creative. I, I think learning is creativity. Really, I do. I'm, I'm kind of a geek in that manner. After the break, we'll find out what piqued Randy's interest recently. If you're a creative person, whether an artist of some sort, a person who is inspired by creativity in its myriad of forms, or a business owner who uses creativity to craft your product, please consider getting in touch with me over at inspirus.com through the contact page. Welcome back. I bet you've been wondering what's captured Randy's attention. Here he is. Miyamoto Masashi, he wrote these scrolls and he talked about 
about the elements and how each one applies to your life. And then you see that you're out of balance and then you're struggling to find balance because you don't know what it is you're out of. But what's happened is you've just focused on one side too much and you haven't learned the flow. And so I got the book on, uh, on Audible, The Scrolls, and I, I listened to it and it did. It kind of clarified that your, your, your life has to be in balance, right? And, and if you have too much fire, you know, you may be strong and you may be a deadly motherfucker. <laughs> But if you don't bring a little flow into that, it's going to consume you and you're going to go too far and then you will lose. So I think that's probably been the biggest, like, I think awakening this year so far for me in the last maybe four or five months is that I'm try- now I'm, I'm trying to find balance in life and I'm not rushing off you know, constantly, be looking for my next idea to, of creativity. I'm trying to take them one at a time. You mentioned earlier about being in the moment, and I want to kind of go back to that. What is one way you pay attention to being in the present moment, and what kind of impact does this have on your life? Clarity. You know, if you can focus on one moment right then and have no distractions, you can almost have like a religious clarity to things sometimes. I typically don't find those unless I'm physically and mentally challenged at the same time. Mental challenge alone won't do it. A physical challenge alone won't do it. But if you put the two together for me, then that provides me with a level of clarity. Can you give me an example of something that happened in that regard? Maybe recently in the last year or so? I wrote a story recently about an accident in 95. What kind of spawned me to write the story was two things. One is I'd watched a short documentary about a Buddhist monk from Tibet who came to the United States, got a doctorate in philosophy. And then he was interpreting a mountaineering documentary. So you'd, you'd hear the climbers and stuff talk about what they were doing, what they were going through, and then he would translate that into a spirituality piece and talk about how, because this and this and this, they're finding spirituality in it. And I was listening to that. It was like super clear, right? I was like, yes, because when you're, when you're focused on something, and you're in that moment. It's like everything's clear. There's nothing's fake around you. And I don't, it's almost as if you are literally with the element. It's a spiritual release. You know, probably super religious people that go to church every Sunday, you know, get filled with the Holy Spirit, sing and dance. I would assume that's how they feel because that's how I feel when I'm doing that. The second part that caused me to write the story was I got asked a question on a Facebook page, and it's a special forces only Facebook page. And I, I made a post and said, hey, if, can we contact the embassy? Because if they find an American body, this could be our brother, Jake. And somebody wrote back and said, what happened to Jake? That was it. So I saw this documentary on spirituality and clarity by a Buddhist monk and a bunch of climbers going up a big mountain. And then I had this question asked, and I'd been holding on to this story for 26 years. And, and I swore to the widow that I wouldn't bring it up again to her family. Well, 26 years later, you know, I've, I've kept tabs on his family through the FAR, and so is Special Forces through the FAR. I've learned that his wife, his, his widow, still comes to the memorial and puts flowers every year down on the day that uh, he passed. But now his kids have kids. So this has moved beyond his story now, because his kids have had children. There's, there's a new chapter in their life. There's a new story. And... For me, I haven't got to let that chapter go yet. So having somebody ask that question 
literally, I sat down and wrote a six-page story about what happened. Six pages came out of me like that in probably two hours. A little bit of editing. I posted it up. And then the outcry for that story was immense. And so now I'm writing a book and I'm enjoying the process. And I'm learning to not only express my feelings, but it's helping me to to let go of some of the things I didn't get to laugh at, right? Some of the suffering that I never got to actually go, ha ha, it sucks. I haven't done that yet for a couple of things. And so writing this book and writing this story have been, have been a release for me. And that's helped me personally to just feel better. And again, it's creative too. What I'm learning about writing a story, you want the other person to feel the emotion you had that exact moment. You may have never climbed a mountain in your life, but when I describe the rappel off the cliff to look over my right shoulder and gaze 900 feet to our camp below, and then as I turned more, I spotted the blood stain about 50 yards from our camp that went off the glacier, right? You know, when I'm describing that, I'm trying to give the reader a distinct image of what I felt at that exact moment. That's my biggest creative thing that I've had in my life right now and, and where I'm going with it. And I feel really good about it. And I'm not doing it to be disrespectful to the widow's wishes that I don't tell her family about it. And I think I've been extremely respectful of that. But now it's not their story. I think it's my story now. I've had some really good former commanders and special forces contact me directly and ask me that same question. And I've given them that answer. And they've told me, Good. That's a good answer in the way you said that. So I, I feel confident that I'm doing the right thing. The whole story in itself is respectful to, to this man because he was an amazing guy. There's nothing bad you can say. I mean, there was an accident. You know, we were at 25,000 feet in the air with no oxygen. Accidents happen. I wish they didn't. You know, I've had to learn to do a lot with that over the years. So yeah, that's my creativity right now. That's my outlet. That's my focus. What's helping me, I think, the most right now. So maybe that's why I'm successful now, because I feel like I'm, once again, giving in a positive way to help others. That was going to be one of my questions. What does success mean to you? And how do you know when you have it? <laughs> the first time I ever saw somebody die, and then they pointed out why that person died, I said, we can fix that and make sure that nobody ever dies again. That was, you know, that's in, in the perfect world. Sad, it's not satisfaction, but... um. Success. Success. I, I, success is a moving target, right? Yeah. And I, I don't always know that I'm successful, but there are times when I feel really strongly and affirmative about what it is that I'm doing, like this podcast. Yeah. This, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. This is my success. Right. This is what, what feeds me emotionally and intellectually and spiritually even. Yeah. And that's kind of what I'm asking you. What is, how have you come to realize that you are successful in whatever endeavor that you're partaking? How do I feel successful? Maybe it's not even feel. Maybe how, how do you know? How do you reckon that that is in your life? I mean, when you said that you were successful with, you know, with this business now, yeah. what tells you that you're successful? What, what is it that well, yeah. so, so okay, I mean, well, I'm, doing, so, I'm kicking you know, ass. Affirmation of what you're doing. Exactly. Right? Affirmation. So people seek you out for a purpose. And then you do that purpose, and then more people seek you out for it. That's kind of what I consider to be success. I don't expect to make a million dollars teaching this stuff. That's not my goal behind it, right? I hope to be successful at it. 
It's because I like to help others. I like to give to others. I've seen people die. And then you find out ways that that could have been prevented. And then you're like, man, I never want to have people die like that again. So now I want to share that experience. Mm -hmm. I want to share that experience in hopefully a manner that's positive so nobody, so if somebody else can and say, well, if I ever see that, I'll remember what he said and I won't make that same mistake. Does that make sense? Absolutely. It makes, yeah. I, so I get it. that's really where I feel success comes from is if you feel that you're giving in a positive manner back to someone. You have to find what your, like you just asked me, what is your definition of success? You, I, that's my definition. Everybody has to find their own. And for me, it's a feeling of giving back. And I find giving back in the areas of safety, things that can kill you, that I've experienced and lived through. Those are the things that make me feel the best when I give back. Because I've really, I, you know, I've, I've, I have had to dodge the fucking bullets. <laughs> I was fortunate. Every one of my best friends has got shot. They're like, how come you didn't get shot? I don't know, man. It's those fucking angels. You know what I'm saying? Said, I, I don't know why I didn't get shot, but I didn't get shot. And I was lucky. And some of my friends have seen three times in my combat. Act, you know, and so I feel very fortunate. Would you say that your new business venture, you said that it helps you feel good because you're giving back, right? Is it, a, is it also a way to honor Jake and your other com comrade? Is it, a, is it a way to show them that it wasn't in vain? You not learned? what I'm doing now. No? Not what I'm doing now. What I did in Special Forces, yes. I mean, I was a very influential member of the mountaineering community for the 16 years that I was there. So I did 18 years in SF, and 16 of it, I was a senior mountaineering instructor. And I was the senior mountaineering instructor when I retired first group. And I, I think there was only one Bergfuhrer left in 10th group. So that would have made me the next senior, senior mountaineering instructor. In first group, where I was from, we didn't have a Bergfuhrer because where we operated was Southeast Asia and Asia, <laughs> right? I was up in China and Tibet and India, went over to Singapore, Thailand. I've been to 17 countries all in Asia and West Asia, right? Yeah. So. <laughs> so I just never got to go to the Alps. We never got to do that. Well, we got to Himalayas. First group had all these mountains, these great mountains, and we had mountain teams, and we were actively climbing constant. What we did was just took our best climbers and made them the senior guys. When I got on my team, I had a ton of experience from being a kid, being in the mountains, right? Yeah. So I fit in really quick. And then I was a fast learner, you know, I was like, I loved it. I'm like, well, I've never done that before. Please show me how. And once you showed me, man, I didn't mess it up. You know, I was like, no, he said do it that way. That's how I did it. I was disciplined on that kind of stuff. And so I excelled. I did really well. And my personal, I'll say, expertise was in, in altitude slash mountaineering, general mountaineering, which is climbing tall mountains to get to the summit. Very quickly, I got picked to, to be an instructor for things. After the break, Randy will share what has made him the happiest recently. If you have ideas about people I should get in touch with for inspiring conversations about creativity, please send me a note through the contact page at inspirus-podcast.com. And now, back to Inspirus Audio Magazine. What has made you happiest recently, and what, to what do you attribute this? My book. My story about Jake. That's made me the happiest I've ever been in a long time. That's a, you know, the, writing the story about the accident that I had in the Himalayas. 
that right now is bringing more closure for me than anything else has in a long time. So a lot of people don't know this, but the mountain I was on was actually climbed, the first American to climb it was John Ross Kelly in 1974, I think it was. And he wrote a book about that trip because on that trip, they had a climbing accident where somebody died at their last camp as well. And we were on the other side of that mountain that they went up when my friend died. And so I think I'm going to hijack the name of the book and call it The Second. <laughs> so you mentioned that art that you pay attention to is music. So whose music has, have you been listening to lately? And why do you think this <laughs> artist has spoken to you? I graduated 87, high school in 87. So early 80s, little backwoods town, you know, Yelm, Washington. And the rest of the world had progressed forward. We were still stuck in the late 70s, early 80s, when Europe was having all their turmoil. And you had like the Dead Kennedys, and you had all the punk rock bands. <laughs> so I listened to punk rock. I loved punk rock because nobody listened to that, right? It was top 40 rock and roll pop. That was it, right? So I was kind of the weirdo in school um, for some of the music, but I listened to their music too. I just, I've always had like a thing for music has always spoken to me differently. I was in the 18 Delta Special Forces medical course and I was studying in Barnes and Nobles one day. So you'd sit in the coffee shop, get a coffee, do your homework. And I'm doing my homework and I find myself tapping my foot. I'm just tapping my hand, tapping my foot. And I'm like, it's a great song. Never heard this song before. And it was some big band song. I went over, found the, found the album, bought the CD right then, took it home. And I still listen to them today. My son, that turns out to be his favorite kind of music. He loves big band music. Like, not jazz, but more like, well, what's the, what's theirs? There's, I'm terrible with genres, but. Swing? Swing. There we go. Like big band swing. You know, he loves that. He plays trumpet for the high school. So that's his kind of music. Right? Have you heard of Parov Stellar? Yes. Yeah. I'm a huge fan of Parov Stellar. He's changed, he's changed the genre from yeah. old school to new. In, well, that's the definition of creativity. You take an old thing and put new spin on it, and now you have this whole... Well, so you asked what's been influential, though. So I pop around a lot of stuff on Pandora. And the other day, uh, Pandora, out of somewhere weird, I was listening to one of my rock channels. No, I was listening to Suicidal Tendencies channel. That was it. So I'm listening to the Suicidal Tendencies channel on Pandora, and it throws up COC, corrosion of conformity. Right? Oh, man. It's like grunge came out, and it was like this off spin of punk grunge with a little bit of metal thrown in. Oh, I might have to check that right? out. So I was listening to the words, and I'm like, dude, when did he write that? Right? And I go, I look, damn. And then, you know, you listen to words of older songs, and all of a sudden I'm like, man, these guys are telling a story then of what they saw, and it's going on right now. I'm like, holy crap. So I posted it up as like, like a laugh funny ha-ha. Check it out. 1984, these fuckers were singing about today. <laughs> In 84, they called it like it was, and it's I was like, Oh, so it's been fun, kind of uplifting to visit that like old school punk rock days that I had prior. You know, it's kind of like the lead up into Special Forces too, because that was uh, around the early 90s, you know, when I was really getting into those guys. So 
there's a couple of B bands from that era that are just fun to listen to. Mm-hmm. And, and I find their perspectives, what they were singing about, right? If you listen to the Suicidal Tendencies songs, that's why I loved him when I was a kid. Because he's talking about being a kid, man. He's talking about the struggles of being a kid in California. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I find it entertaining, but also relevant somehow. But music in general gets me to a good spot. Well, I, what I find interesting about music, I've always been, I don't want to say addicted to music, but music helps me get through different periods in my life. I agree. Um, and also, music defines a period of my life. So mm. if you mm. were to talk about Genesis, I, I, when I was first in the Navy, I saw the Invisible Touch tour in Orlando. Oh, okay. And so that album and that concert defines that particular period of 86 87 mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm, right in mm-hmm. that really young 1920 yeah, age yeah, or whatever yeah. and then then i got then i discovered depeche mode and i uh, you know so <laughs> and, and i'm listening to to live album i'm listening to live albums right now and my favorite activity about music currently in addition to to realizing that you can be addicted to a song oh, that it, it hits that dopamine oh, yeah, it he said totally is listening to a live album song. Like one in particular is called Breakdown by Tom Petty. Okay. And it's live at the Wilburn. He starts to sing the song and then the crowd takes over. And so they're part of the experience. And that's what music is for me, is being part of the... And it makes me emotional. It allow myself to be emotional in a moment, you know, a song, you know. I I agree. Music helps me to definitely express my own emotions openly if i'm in that if i'm really feeling music i've always had an attachment to music i don't know if it was because my mom i started playing piano when i was god i think i was five my mom had me playing piano and i played all the way up until i was 15 and i only stopped playing piano because my piano teacher refused to let me play any rock or modern music she was so dedicated to the classics you know i mean i could play some fucking bach and beethoven let me tell you but yeah, I, got, I, I lost interest in it because she never let me progress forward into modern music. My final regular question would be, where do you want to travel and why? That's a funny question. We've been in conversation for the last two days. I am in love with Nepal. Just the country, so the people, the mountains, just everything about that location in the world is amazing. I would love to go back there. It's a very spiritual place just in general because of the mountains. You feel minuscule and insignificant there. Things are so big. I would love to go back there. But that said, I've always wanted to go to Chile because <laughs> I've never seen the Andes. I've always wanted to see the Andes. I used to, I used to read about climbing Aconcagua down in the Andes. I have probably five guidebooks in my house from when I was a young guy. And I, I studied the routes. I, I knew one day I'd get to go on a trip there. But it just never happened. So, Let me ask you a, quite an unplanned question. Huh? I'm, not a, I'm not typically a morbid person, but there are some activities that if I'm going to go, if I'm going to die, I'd yeah. rather be doing those activities. What single activity would you want to go out doing? Sex. Sex. I'd like to have a heart attack <laughs> right in the middle of just getting a nut. <laughs> <laughs> falling sucks, dude. I don't want it to be falling. I can tell you that. Yeah. Um, I've seen people fall. <laughs> yeah. In real world, and that's not. Yeah. 
No, you want it to be fun, fun. God, I want it. Yeah, I want it to be something fun. You know, doing 150 in a Corvette you stole and you jump off a fucking bridge. You know, who knows? Go out with a bang. Yeah, I mean, yeah, there you go. All right, so these are going to be my my rapid fire questions. Don't take a lot of time. Okay. What are you curious about right now? Space. The final frontier. <laughs> well, space Force. There's a lot going on in space right now. So, okay, I, I'm I'm very big on exploration in general, and right now our exploration of space has hit levels that I've always waited for since I was a kid. I thought this would have already happened decades ago. You know, now we're just starting to really get to the ability to do it. But NASA's got some great programs, so I'm excited for those programs. Would you go into space if you had the opportunity? God, yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, Harvey. Nice. <laughs> if they needed a volunteer to start that colony on Mars, right? Because you're not going to get a return trip. We can get you there, but you're not coming back. I'd be like, done. Do it. It doesn't matter where the body dies, man. You know, this is flesh and bone. When the, when the spirit is gone, all my electrons and whatever they are will fly out to the universe and I'll be one with the fucking universe, you know? That can happen here on Earth. That can happen on Mars, in my opinion. I don't give a shit. Nice. <laughs> I wrote this before I found out about your summer vacations. What do you miss most about your childhood summer vacations? I don't miss what happened, but it was very influential in my life. And I would definitely say it was when my mom was able to provide me with the opportunities to go to those survival schools as a kid. I know those cost quite a bit of money to go to. And she may have gotten some grants or something like that too to help. But I think the survival classes that I got to take were super influential on me being learning resilience. You're on a train trip across the country and can only bring three things. What are they? Water. (laughs) I'm practical. (laughs) You're going to get thirsty. You're traveling across country. Three things. Water, camera, and a pillow. Simple. (laughs) Because I want to promote you and your business, I want you just to give me a minute worth of what it is that you're doing for a business and where we would be able to find you about that. All right. Thanks. So I started a business called Save Lives First Aid. Save Lives First, as in 1ST.com. So savelivesfirstaid.com. I have a online representation for my business and from there you'll see a store that just sells first aid products what the business is actually what i'm going for is what we're developing is is i want to build a training center that focuses on first aid cpr stop the bleeding type classes as well as a basic introduction to firearm safety so there's an introduction, and then that's what you learn your basics of, right? And then you progress to get better from there. That's what we teach. That's what we do. Right now, I teach all of my classes are are coordinated or scheduled with small businesses or private organizations, private people. They'll sponsor a class. I'll come to them with all the equipment, and we give the class. But what I'm working on is the location where we can progress and actually have a, a training facility to offer those classes constantly on a regular basis so that people can sign up and, and know where the class is going to be at and know what the time is. And so that just takes a little time. 
the storefront is there and you see a lot of first aid equipment for sale and we carry north american rescue products uh, because basically because they're what the military uses and everything that i teach comes from a military background it comes from a military it comes from what i like to say the special forces perspective or the special forces mindset we teach reflexive skills in medicine and in firearms handling and so where I, I break it down into four fundamentals because it's based on combat shooting. And so that's the special forces mindset. And I found a way to express that in a way that people appreciate and have requested now multiple times. And I enjoy it. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the biggest thing I can just say. Is I enjoy it. Every time you employ your weapon, you're supposed to do it the safest way possible. There's no second place in a gunfight. There's a winner. And okay. the first loser. <laughs> yeah. So when it comes time to do that, when it comes time to do that, and we have a legal class on that too, we cover all that. It's the legal, legal aspects of carrying a firearm in the state of Washington and a right to defend yourself here. But what I want to make sure is the person that came to my class is the person that understands that it is, it is not something to, to play with. It is not a toy. And it is there to defend yourself or your life or the life of another. And when you go to employ that, there are things you do in a very deliberate manner so that you don't fuck up. That's really what it comes down to. So that's what I try and help people to understand. That's, that's what the business is uh, covering, covering basic orientation to firearms and uh, how, to, how to keep yourself safe and how to keep others safe. And then first aid. And I teach kind of an offshoot of a what will be called wilderness first aid, but I teach it different than every other wilderness first aid out there, so I call it motorcycle IFAC course. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and basically, we teach a basic military trauma orientation so that if you have a trauma accident, you can save a person's life right now. And then we go on to cover broken bones, splinting and cast, or not casting, but wrapping, splinting and wrapping in the, in the remote areas, how to do that. And then I also teach uh, how to remove a helmet safely. So, All right. So where can listeners find Randy Curley on or off social media? On social media, Randy Curley. <laughs> <laughs> Way to go, smartass. That's what I'm under. So, are you on Facebook? Yep, are you I'm on, on Facebook. Instagram? I'm on Instagram as myself. Save Lives First Aid is also on Facebook and Instagram. I uh, don't use those really as a large platform yet, but I post some updates every once in a while. Trying to manage two social media platforms and a web page, I've learned, is a full time job. And uh, I would much rather focus on the actual work that goes into it yeah. than the social media page. So it's a good way for people to contact me if they've got questions. Really? <laughs> Sweet. Anything else you want to say before I uh, let you go? Oh, um, thanks for having me out. It's good to see you. It's been a while. We definitely have to go ride. Absolutely. Yeah. More sunny days coming up, right? Oh, man. I'll be interested to see how fast the snow melts this year over in the Gifford, Gifford Pinchot National Forest because they just got slammed after this last storm. And I heard there was like eight feet of snow out there. Oh, wow. Right. I'm like, oh, that'll take late, late mid-summer to late Did summer. Did you get a new back tire on the back of your uh, 
Leviathan. To remember when we went up that and there was snow and you were yeah. slip, slip sliding? Well, I got... What am I running on? The, I'm running a big, fat, wide uh, desert traction tire on the back of that. Because I was going to do the, the BDR, if you recall. And then the bike had the uh, electrical problem. So I had to get that fixed. So I missed the BDR that year. Yeah, let's do let's do at least one leg of the BDR this this summer, man. Well, so I told you, my friend Steve, he wants to go do the whole thing now, because he's done two sections with me. He's done the the section one, and he's done the hardest section, section two. That's with the baby head hill. Yeah, but it's not hard. It's you'd be on it already. You, you're past that. I rode it the third day I ever rode, and I crashed on it, and I went to the bottom, and then I rode up the second time. So that was literally like the third day I ever rode. It's a momentum thing. I think you've got momentum. Just now. keep it going. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, just like you know, it's like you, you're hitting rocks that are the size of a, a small doll's head. <laughs> Why they call them baby heads. And there's thousands of them, you know, and those have a tendency to make your front tire bounce. And if you're on an adventure bike, you've got to maintain tire pressure. You can't be jacking tire pressure up and down. For traction on a big bike, because I've tried that and I bent rims, and it just sucks. Rims do not—you don't fix rims after they're bent, so you have to buy a new one. Rims are outrageously expensive for the big bikes; stupid expensive. So you need to run the proper tire pressure. So what that requires is having the right tire on the bike for the track terrain you're on, and then you have to either use the traction control or turn it completely off. And use the clutch. And that's the way I go. I ride it like a dirt bike. I take that big 1190. And I pretend that I'm on my 450. And I just just get on it. And by maintaining that constant low gear traction with work of the clutch. You don't spin. Which prevents you from bouncing. As long as you're not bouncing. You can go right up the one side of it. But as soon as you start bouncing. You, the people you see, this is, people try to speed up to outgo the bounce and end up going off the edge or up the cliff, right? <laughs> or, or they just pile it up right off the bat. Yeah, it's not bad, though. I don't think you'd have any issues. I think you'd have fun. I'm looking so, forward to it, that's for sure. We'll definitely go out there and do it. Cool. Well, thanks for having this me over. This is awesome, man. Thank you so much. Well, I hope this gives you something. I don't know. I'm not. I'm Spencer Webster, and this is Inspiris Audio Magazine. I spoke with Randy Curley about how creativity is threaded into his life. Randy is one of those people who seems to always have a smile on his face, even when the chips are down. And as you heard, even when the chips are down, he can turn the negative on its ear. He inspires me to be a better person, and of course, a better adventure motorcycle rider. This podcast will continue to share the inspiring people who live their creative life every day. My next episode will feature friend, fellow Navy retiree, and novelist, Mark Piggott. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider visiting my Ko-fi page, that's ko-fi.com slash inspiris underscore audio underscore magazine. Inspiris Audio Magazine is produced by Spencer Webster and SP Webster Press. Music is provided by Leland Hirschman, and intro narration is provided by Mackenzie Webster. And it bears repeating, please consider subscribing at inspirist-podcast.com. And remember, creativity is in your future.